It's episode 111 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Fien. Today on the program is digital experience futurist Preston So. He's written a new book titled Voice Content and Usability, and we're going to discuss the challenges and opportunities in designing how we talk to machines. Preston, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me here on the Presentable Podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Ah, it's great. It's great. I am fascinated by this whole topic. We've had a couple of episodes where we've talked about this uh, in years past on the show. So much is happening. I think we're going to have a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, before we do, let me ask you uh, about, uh, you know, what is a digital experience futurist? <laughs> yeah, we just, you know, your title there is, is uh, fascinating to me. Sure. Um, I self-style, you know, with that term digital experience futurist. But one of the things I'll be very clear about is I know a lot of people don't like the term futurist. I know a lot of people don't like the term digital experience. It kind of shrouds certain things about what I actually do. I use that title or that, you know, I use that self-styling because um, I really weave in and out of a lot of different areas, not just the code and the technical architecture of how we build user interfaces, but also the design and content strategy and all of the aspects that revolve around the creative process too. And I like to call myself that because I'm not just focused on voice content and voice interfaces, which is what we're going to talk about today, Jeff. Yeah. Um, I'm also really interested in immersive realities immersive experiences like augmented and virtual reality, um, and really anything that involves going beyond the web and off the screen. It's something that um, at Oracle we like to call pageless experiences. And it's one of those things that I think is a really important way to think about our future, uh, not just from the standpoint of where we are today and where we're headed with the web, but also into some of these things that are a little bit more newfangled, a little bit more novel territory that are really groundbreaking and important to think about ahead of time and not when it comes around the corner. Oh, that's great. I think uh, there's a lot in what you just said that we could uh, unpack and, and and discuss. I want to start, though, with sort of a scenario. And we're going to focus, uh, as you said, on kind of voice-enabled design or voice-enabled devices and how we create experiences for those. But so when I was thinking about this, uh, I was imagining, you know, uh, uh, I can kind of remember about a year and a half ago when I would go to an airport. And uh, uh, you go to an airport and there's that booth in the middle of the terminal with a person sitting in it and you can ostensibly ask them any question about any detail of the, that airport or travel kind of in general or kind of the, the city that you might be in right and they'll even give you an answer or they'll ask you a few more questions to help kind of clarify what you're after and i think about that simple experience and i have a couple questions for you which is kind of how far are we away from actually providing experiences like that? Um, and I mean that in kind of the context of like the difference in resolution, right? Mm. Uh, which will like, you know, set our expectations and, and things like that. But, but if I think about it in terms of like, um, yeah, really resolution is the word I think about. How, how close are we really? And then kind of as a follow-up question to that, is that really even the goal? Like, is mm. that like that sort of Star Trek, hey, computer kind of world really what we're heading for? So anyway, that's a place to start. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of angles to approach that question from. I mean, when we think about voice interfaces, the classic example is obviously Major Barrett in Star Trek, the computer's voice, yeah. um, you know, and all of these voice assistants that drive some of those actions that people take on the USS Enterprise. But I think one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is we're very far away from that really ambitious future. 
But there are certain things that have happened that have pointed us in the right direction. The first is that a lot of these airports, a lot of these airlines or brands, hotel conglomerates, for example, now have what are called IVR or interactive voice response systems that people use on phone hotlines. When you call up uh, Hyatt or you call up Delta, you're getting usually some sort of an interactive voice response system. And that's sort of the previous generation of voice interfaces as we think about them today. But today, one of the things that's very interesting is that now that a lot of the natural language processing and speech synthesis and speech recognition capabilities have improved on a lot of these um, uh, hardware, one of the interesting uh, things that's happening is that there's now these corporations like Amazon, Apple, Google, IBM, all trying to enter the picture and competing with each other on the basis of their affinity for human conversation. Meaning, hey, can you exactly actually become one and the same as this let's say, information kiosk attendant or somebody who's a customer service agent on the front lines at the Mm -hmm. airport or on the front lines at a hotel and actually embody that personality, embody that person and and become, for all intents and purposes, a human um, partner when it comes to having a conversation and getting information you need. There are certain things that are interesting in that vision, though, which is, number one, one of the goals of some of these voice assistants like Apple Siri or Google Home or Amazon Alexa is to ostensibly answer any feasible question you might have, not just about the airport, sure. but also about, let's say, mass transit in the city or potentially things like um, how you can figure out where to find a lost and found, where to actually find, let's say, an accessible restroom. All of these things are very important for anyone who's traveling. But a lot of times these devices aren't capable of answering those questions. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that comes down to, as you said, the resolution or the granularity of the sorts of voice information we're able to serve. One really uh, interesting example of this, and I cover this at length in my book, uh, Voice Content and Usability, is the case of Ask Georgia Gov, which is the first um, Alexa interface built for the residents of Georgia. But that's a purpose-built interface. And I think one of the things that's interesting to think about is You know, you've got a lot of these purpose-built interfaces that are out there, like Capital One, you can check your credit card balance, you can order a pizza from Domino's entirely through voice interfaces, but there's not a whole lot out there that allows you to not only acquire information about a particular topic, but also to acquire information about any topic in particular. And this is one of the things that I think is really interesting in the discourse, which is um, several uh, scholars, several academics have been talking about the problem of user experience and the problem of usability when it comes to conversational interfaces. Uh, people like, um, I believe, Rafael Arar, um, some of these other academics have written about this problem we face today where a lot of the interactions we have with voice interfaces are really rooted in these artificial rehearsed interactions that bear much more relation to how we actually use a keyboard and mouse and Mm. practice using those artificial devices than they do to the actual conversation you and I are having right now, Jeff. And they talk about the need for conversation-centric design, which means those boundaries that we talked about, right, that those limitations and that resolution of getting to the point where you can actually uh, have a conversation about anything you want to, that's still a very lofty goal. And it's something that a lot of folks, a lot of organizations still haven't gotten to yet because of the fact that we've got this, these arbitrary boundaries between individual topic areas, arbitrary boundaries between brands, and ultimately arbitrary boundaries between the organizations and the corporations that are making these voice assistants happen. And I think the biggest issue as a digital experience futurist that I'm looking towards is when we talk about visions like what Mark Curtis calls the conversational singularity, where 
literally any conversation we have with a voice interface, just like uh, you know the point at which AI really overcomes that uncanny valley effect, the conversational singularity is that moment where we are able to have a conversation with the voice interface like Alexa or Siri that's completely indistinguishable from the kind of conversation we might have with somebody at the deli counter or somebody at the gate at the airport. Of course, one of the issues, and I think one of the things that I'd love to um, you know, mention as well is one of the big problems inherent to this whole idea of conversation-centric design and the notion of the conversational singularity is, well, okay, those are really cool ideas and those help with the problem that you mentioned, Jeff, but for whom is it conversationally centric? For whom hmm. do we have this conversational singularity? So it's a really uh, big question, lots to unpack there. We've only just scratched the surface in these last few minutes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wonder, would we get to this so-called singularity as a sum of all the parts, right? Like I wouldn't go to the, the, the person sitting at the desk at the airport and ask them questions about nutrition or how to like, you know, walk up to them and say, <laughs> how do I lead a happy life? Right. Like that's a, you know, and that's an interesting conversation, but not for this context. So I wonder if, like, if we got really good at travel, at travel bot, and we got really good at, you know, psychologist bot, and we got really good at deli ordering bot. And at some point, we've done tens of thousands, and, and it, it does start to feel like there's a seamless transition between all of that, r- r- rather than like we just have to get this all encompassing general AI to work. Yep. That's a really great point. And I think that's a really, um, you know, sort of good transition into some of the problems that we find today when it comes to those arbitrary boundaries, not just between the topical areas that we want to cover and the thematic material we want to cover, but also some of the distinctions between how some of these interfaces actually handle these conversational interactions very differently from each other. Yeah. Um, one example of this is, you know, when you have a conversation with Amazon Alexa or with, you know, Apple Siri, they usually start off by saying something like, hey, you know, how are you doing today? Or, hey, how are you? And that kind of small talk, that kind of glad handing is something we always expect from a human conversation. But it's not exactly something that we expect Alexa or Siri to be particularly good at, given that they're mere bots. Um, But there's an interesting set of categories for these sorts of conversational interactions that uh, every conversation designer, every voice interface designer should know about. Um, And I call them pro-social um, transactional inf- and informational. These are covered mm. by Amir Shevat in his book, Designing Chatbots, as well as in uh, Michael McTeer and others' uh, book, The Conversational Interface. And pro-social is really that sort of conversation that's very difficult for bots. This notion that, oh, you know, you want to know about how the other person is doing. You want to have that initial grounding period where you have a sense of, does this person actually really want to have a conversation with me about this topic in the first place or about this particular task in the first place? And a lot of these bots or a lot of these assistants aren't yet that good at answering those sorts of pro-social questions. If you ask you know, an Amazon Alexa, are you my friend? Of course, the Alexa is going to respond, yes, I'm your friend, uh, because that's what it's been trained to do. But there's also that arbitrary and really strange distinction and nuance between the two forms of conversational interactions that predominate across the voice industry today. And the first is the one that we talked about around, um, you know, things like checking a credit card balance or ordering a pizza, which are really what Amir Shavat calls task-led or what I call transactional interactions. Yeah. But then there's the other side of it, which is, um, you know, where a lot of voice interfaces today still aren't really in the big picture of things. And I find that informational or topic-led voice interfaces or conversational interfaces are still extraordinarily rare. 
It's one thing to order a pizza, but it's another thing to ask about the, the nutrition facts of that pizza or to ask mm. about what toppings are kosher or halal. It's really, really hard still today to get that sort of information from a voice assistant that's even oriented towards that particular, uh, let's say, uh, realm of concerns. So I think there's not just the notion of, you know, these purpose-built interfaces that are purpose-built for what they're actually serving in terms of the kinds of use cases they're there to serve, but also the notion of, well, what type of use case is it? What kind of action are you doing? Because we've got those transactional interfaces, those transactional conversational interactions pretty well under wraps at this point where uh, we can serve uh, these, you know, takeout bots or these um, sort of uh, uh, transactional bots really easily. Um, but a lot of these informational bots or some of these interfaces that really are meant to deliver content aren't so well-built or purpose-built yet in the ways that we might think. So there's a lot to slice and dice there, but I will say that I think we can go in one of two directions in that regard, which is if we go in the direction of having these purpose-built, really fine-tuned bots, that ultimately services that targeted user experience in a much better way, especially if we can really hone in on the types of interactions, transactional and informational, that our users want to have. By the same token, however, obviously one of the goals of Amazon, Google, Apple is to, you know, essentially, for lack of a better word, take over the entire world and get to the point where every single interaction you might have is mediated through Amazon, Google, and Apple, which is both a very interesting and also a very terrifying uh, future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's take a little break. Uh, We'll be right back with a bunch more on this. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast way of experience. Doesn't matter how well you've targeted your marketing content or how beautifully you've designed your website, they'll bounce if a page is loading too slowly. So with real user monitoring from Pingdom, you can discover your website performance and how it affects your visitors' experience. You can take action before your business is impacted. All of this for as low as $10 a month. Whether your visitors are dispersed around the world or across browsers, devices, and platforms, Pingdom can help you identify bottlenecks, troubleshoot performance, and make informed optimizations. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution, so it's built for scalability. This means you can monitor millions of page views and not just take samples of your data. And you can do that at an affordable price. Get live site performance visibility today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. Get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then, when you're ready to buy, you can use the code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get an awesome 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. All right. One, I, I did have a question just about uh, that framework, the pro-social, uh, transactional, informational. Um, you know, one of the things I find really interesting about voice systems that I interact with today is, uh, I guess, what I would call skeuomorphism, right? Like, how closely should they uh, resemble actual human conversation? And the pro-social stuff is, is really interesting in that regards. Like, voice systems don't ask me how I am today. Right, because they want to get right to the you know, transactional. But at the same time, like if I say something and they don't pick it up, they I can hear in the voice that they've sort of now like, hmm, I didn't quite get that. Instead of like, you know, input not received. Right. So there's, so we are taking steps towards making things, I guess, a little more skeuomorphically human. Yeah, it's a it's a really great point, and I think um, one of the things that I find really interesting is that. 
one of the first things that people will do to test out a voice assistant like a Google Home or Amazon Alexa is to really carry on this sort of small talk conversation with them, even though the, their capacity for it is really limited and uh, really stilted. Um, we talk about skeuomorphism in this context of voice interfaces, and I think it's really um, emblematic also of the uncanny valley effect that we encounter with these voice interfaces, where you're really talking with somebody that doesn't actually have any empathy of any sort or has any sort of rationale or motivation to understand how you're doing uh, insofar as um, it concerns you. It's more about the task you want to perform, the thing you want to do with that interface. I think, however, there are some interesting um, both positive and negative implications of this. The positive implications of of going towards this more pro-social direction is that um, with these let's say, more humanized forms of feedback. And I talk a lot about this in my book, Voice Content and Usability, about how to soften your feedback, how to create error recovery strategies that don't essentially frustrate the user and um, give them what I might call you know, voice interface rage. Um, you want to be able to serve their uh, needs while also being polite and being as human as possible. And this is one of the really interesting things about voice interfaces in particular, as opposed to a chatbot or, or other right. written conversational interfaces, for example. Um, for example, you know, uh, voice interfaces are really the most human interfaces. Um, and one thing that I always like to uh, refer to is Erica Hall's quote from Conversational Design, where she says that actually conversation is the oldest interface. It's the most primordial interface that we have access to as humans because there's so much encoded in the language that we use. There's so much encoded in how we speak. There's so much subtext and there's so much um, you know, paralinguistic behavior that happens when we speak and when we actually use physical gestures and we move our arms and we speak in certain ways that actually indicate a lot more about the information that's encoded within that particular utterance than any of these voice assistants could really be capable of today. Yeah. So the more and more these voice interfaces begin to really move into this realm of being able to serve these responses that are very catered towards the emotional state and the emotional context and empathizing, sympathizing with the user in a much better way, the better off, obviously, the user experience will be. However, one of the problems I see is there is a bit of an issue around the fact that there's this uncanniness and this aloofness and this eeriness to these voice interfaces. And also a very important question is, what happens when we personify these interfaces as a very particular subset of individuals? For example, Alexa, Siri, Cortana, they all have women's names and they all are characterized as secretarial women. What does that do in terms of either intensifying or resolving some of the biases that we might have uh, with regard to our ability to put trust in some of these voice assistants that masquerade as people? I wanted to ask you a bunch of questions about that, to be honest. Like, are we uh, going to go make all the same mistakes that we have been making in technology, in user experience, around encoding our biases, um, building things for subsets of people, um, and just not being representational in our work? Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's where the voice assistants have started. They've started making the same mistakes. So... I mean, honestly, where do we start to address this or to change course or to just be aware of what's going on? Sure. It's a, it's a really, it's a really important thing, I think, for all of us to think about, given that as opposed to a place like the web, which really was rooted in this notion of enfranchising um, different people from different backgrounds and really this public good, voice interfaces, especially recently, have come about in a state of the world where 
you've got this oligopoly of corporations, this really interesting context where the information that we receive is controlled by just a few select companies, which has been leading, you know, of course, to things like automated racism, algorithmic oppression, things that are really problematic in the world. And I think we still see a lot of that today with a lot of these issues around voice assistance. Um, There are certainly steps in the right direction. I think one of the really exciting things about some of the recent developments around Amazon Alexa, around services like Amazon Polly, around Waze, for example, is that you can actually configure some of these um, apps and some of these devices to uh, speak to you in a different voice and different accents, which really helps to reflect that rich diversity of the linguistic world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Of course, one of the problems that we have Um, with this is that it takes a lot of effort to customize these voices, even though it's something that a lot of people would benefit from. I remember I was in a lift one time um, going down an expressway here in New York City, and uh, there was, uh, you know, my driver had put in all of these recordings of his daughter saying things like keep left or keep right or police reported ahead and inputted all of those into ways. And he told me, you know, it's so so that I could have her with me on every ride and, and have her read out directions to me on every ride. And that's the sort of thing, that sort of affinity, that sort of identifiability is something that is really lacking in a lot of these voice interfaces. And one example of this is, you know, when you speak to Alexa, the default setting of Alexa is a general American, middle American, um, you know, cisgender white woman's voice. But the ways that we speak, and especially the ways that we speak with other humans, especially the ways that we speak with other customer service agents or phone hotline personnel or the rich array of people that we deal with in the world, our voice assistants don't reflect that at all. And in some ways, I see this as a bit of a, you know, let's say a, 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 a washing out or a bit of a erasure of some of the richness that we have. For example, it's still difficult today to find a voice assistant or an IVR, an interactive voice response system on these hotlines that will use AAVE or that will speak in Indian English or that will speak um, and, and let's say code switch between Spanish and English for uh, folks who grew up speaking both Spanish and English uh-huh. or will code switch between, let's say, queer and straight passing modes of speech. And those sorts of toggles and those sorts of little distinctions and little nuances are things that voice assistants and the companies that back them are still very, very behind on. And when it comes to the most human of interfaces, well, they're not so human after all if we can't even come close to actually matching um, what sorts of human diversity we have in the world today. Ah, that's really interesting. I hadn't quite thought about it. What what it brings to mind is like all of those, uh, the abilities to do the switching that you were referring to, like, is that at the application layer or the API layer, right? Like, And I guess, you know, here I am sitting in front of a Macintosh that is filled with accessibility controls, right? Um, It it feels like, oh, that that should be at the layer of, you know, I guess what you're referring to as the uh, oligarchy, right? Like the... um, the the big platforms that are providing voice services should make that as a, a form of you know I guess a form of accessibility a form of being able to shift the conversation in an API that we can all use for our applications that we build on top. Yeah, and and this is a great point, and this actually goes right into I think a really interesting set of things that are really important to a lot of voice designers everywhere, which is um, you know this notion of APIs versus applications. Um, One of the things that I think is really interesting about the web is that it's pretty easy to tell, or on mobile, for example, it's, 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 it's easier than it is in voice to tell, okay, whose responsibility is this particular 
um, thing, whether it's recognizing speech properly or being able to detect an accent that is a little bit less common. Is that the responsibility of the application or the API? And the argument that a lot of let's say, veteran voice interface designers have made in the past is that, well, a lot of that is really not encoded in APIs that are easy to use, so we have to build that into the application layer. But in Ask Georgia Gov, um, this case study that is in the book uh, Voice Content and Usability, um, we had this really interesting anecdote that really illustrates this distinction between the API and the application. And this also harkens back to your point about accessibility, Jeff. So the state of Georgia... Um, has always been at the forefront of accessibility. They've been a bulwark of web accessibility since the very beginning. And one of the things they knew was they wanted to use voice interfaces to help reach disabled Georgians, elderly Georgians, rural Georgians who might not have a computer or or, uh, a broadband at home and are really looking to be able to reach uh, state government information that they might have to drive 60 miles for or call a hotline and wait for several hours for. So our goal with this interface was to create this accessible alternative that could be used in lieu of the georgia.gov website to help people learn about how to register to vote, to learn about how to um, acquire a new driver's license, things of that nature. What we found eventually um, during our retrospective is two really interesting things. The first is that the primary search terms, the primary questions that people would ask the voice interface were completely different from the searches that they would conduct on the website and the sorts of information that people would seek on the website. And this was a really interesting thing because it indicates that the demographics that those two interfaces are reaching are actually very different. The second thing, however, when it comes to APIs and applications is really interesting, which is that we had this one case and one of the things that we did for AskGeorgiaGov was to um, use a single content management system, a CMS, that would have both the logs for the 404 errors in the website and the logs for the 404 errors or the you know entry not found errors for the voice interface so that they could cross compare and look at, okay, are people having trouble finding this piece of content on the website? Are they having trouble finding this piece of content on Alexa? How do they compare with each other? One really interesting thing we found was buried deep in those logs in that reporting mechanism, there was like 15 Um, different consecutive searches that all went awry and generated a 404 error in the CMS that were asking about Lawson's, as in L-A-W-S-O-N apostrophe S. And that was how it was written out each time. Lawson's. Like we were asking, well, there's a Lawson's like convenience store company in in Japan. You know, there's, you know, there's the name Lawson's. What is this person actually looking for? And what we did is we sat around this table with the other, uh, with the entire Georgia team and we just, you know, racked our brains for so long. We were like, what is, why, what is this person searching for that could possibly generate this weird search term, Lawson's? Finally, uh, one of the native Georgians in the room perked up and said, you know what? I think it might be somebody trying to say license in their native Southern Georgian drawl. And suddenly it was like this, it was like this, you know, the clouds cleared. It was like, oh, they are looking for a driver's license. They're trying to figure out how to renew or get a new driver's license, but they're saying license in their own dialect. And this is a situation where, you know, you can design an interface to within an inch of perfection. You can make sure your application, so to speak, is within an inch of perfection. But if the underlying API isn't equipped to actually listen to and understand and comprehend the variety of of, of rich dialects and rich um, vernaculars that we have in the U.S., then that's actually an API that needs to improve as well. 
And so this was a really interesting example of that distinction between, yeah, you can build a great user experience, but sometimes the foundations could use some improvement too. Absolutely. I mean, what a great example of how we're really just scratching the surface of, <laughs> of, of, uh, of the capabilities a system needs to be able to handle. That's really remarkable. Exactly. Like if you're scared of, uh, you know, bots being able to defeat us at our own game of conversation, rest easy because that's not going to happen for a while. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, let's take a, uh, another little break. We'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by The Inside Track. Hey, if you're looking for a new show to listen to, you should check out The Inside Track. Uh, It's a podcast from Microsoft with a host, Carrie LaBelle, who interviews industry experts, insiders, and analysts from the automotive industry covering long-term trends uh, around how people have different expectations for their cars and the effects of technology uh, and the industry strategies that they're trying to respond. Super interesting. They have a bunch of segments in every show, like how our artificial intelligence is being used in automotive manufacturing or what's happening with connected vehicles and how they're using cloud simulations, uh, intelligent infrastructure, loads of stuff. They've got guests from big auto manufacturers and and technology platforms uh, or the companies that develop technology platforms for the automotive industry. Super, super interesting. I was just listening to an episode about how the attitudes are really shifting over the past decade in the automotive industry where the manufacturers kind of always left the customer experience to the dealerships. Like, it's up to you. You take care of them. Uh, And how much that has changed. You know, we see companies like Tesla selling direct and and things like that. Uh, Fundamental shift in how they think about the experience they have to create for the cars that they're making. Super, super interesting. So go and listen to it. Just search for The Inside Track wherever you get your podcasts or click the link in our show notes here. Thanks to The Inside Track and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. In that previous example, uh, I found it really interesting that you were talking about log analysis as a way to iteratively improve the system. And it brought to mind uh, the fact that this kind of design that you're doing, uh, this kind of content strategy even, will have a whole different set of tools and processes and de- uh, deliverable documentation and uh, visualization, like just all of the mechanisms that we have used for what I have always practiced, which is interactive digital design, are going to have to shift and adapt or be invented for this sort of new frontier that we're, that we're facing. Where are we even starting uh, you know, in that landscape? Yeah, and this is one of those things that really ties into the realm of content strategy, content design, UX writing, all of these important domains that, frankly, in my opinion, have gotten a bit of short shrift when it comes to voice interfaces and conversation design. Sure. Because we've been focused so much on the transactional use cases and not so much on the informational use cases. You know, there are some times when I want to be able to talk about a musical or talk about In the Heights or talk about Cruella as opposed to actually getting tickets for those movies. And those are situations that our voice interfaces need to be able to handle. Of course, one of the issues around this whole notion of content is that, for better or worse, a lot of our content, actually pretty much all of our content for the last few decades, has been really wrapped up in the web. And almost to a fault. The web has given us some amazing things. The web has given us really important tropes of the web like links and calls to action and nav bars and breadcrumbs and sitemaps and all of these things that if you were to ask somebody from the 70s what these things were, they wouldn't sure. know anything about what you're talking about. But this notion of the web and the notion of moving our content onto the web has actually biased us in favor of the web because a lot of our content today is written for a context where we assume 
that every single link will be colored blue and underlined, where we assume that every single uh, person will have access to a nav bar or a sitemap. And that simply isn't the case. And I think there's a really good illustration of this that comes from the voice interface designer and accessibility expert, uh, Chris Mari, who wrote about screen readers um, as a as a blind user of screen readers and said, you know, I never understood why people design screen readers this way, because fundamentally websites and the ways in which we present content on a website are rooted in visual structures and visual manifestations of that content. And you hear that first and foremost, when you use something like Chromevox or JAWS, when you hear somebody saying something like skip to main content and you're like, you know, why do we need things like that for something that is really meant to be more of a human conversation in the context of acquiring information? So when you look at the screen reader example, it really illustrates the fact that a lot of these assumptions about content that we've made are very much still couched in the ideas and principles of the web. And one of the things that we need to do is to move off of some of these motifs, some of these approaches and say, okay, how can we come up with more of an omni-channel content strategy or or a a content design approach that allows for us to use a single source of truth for our content, like Georgia did with their single website that goes out to both websites and out to their conversational interfaces, while still allowing for all of these interactions to happen in a rich way. Because you can't click on a link in a voice interface. You can't read more in a voice interface, just like you can't do those things necessarily as easily in a screen reader. So it really poses some very interesting questions in my mind about how we want our content to look in the future, especially given the fact that a lot of these experiences for content are now moving off of the web into extended reality, into voice, into digital signage, all these places where it's not so easy as clicking a mouse or typing on a keyboard. Right. So there's a bunch to invent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. Um, How about um, making sure we get it right, the validation, right? Um, At the simplest level, how do we do usability for voice systems? But beyond that, there's got to be a a growing body of work around user research and, Mm -hmm. um, and this new type of design. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I'll note is that there is, uh, this is, is a, you know, very much a field that has seen a lot of research, a lot of work. Some of the people that have done some really amazing work in this regard are people like Susan Hura, who has written extensively about user uh, testing within the context of voice interfaces and other conversational interfaces. It's a new area, though, for a lot of people who are used to the ways in which um, usability works within the context of the web. Um, We know about eye tracking. We know about certain things like um, F-shaped viewing patterns now, thanks to a lot of usability research. We know about things that are very common techniques like concurrent probing and some of these uh, question-driven approaches that happen. But what happens when you're having a conversation not only with your test researcher, your your, actual um, practitioner of this research, and also a voice interface? Well, a lot of the approaches that we use on the web, like Think Aloud, and some of those approaches in real time go out the window because you can't have two conversations at once. Otherwise, you're going to have uh, mixed up data. Um, So I think one of the things that really needs to happen is, just as we mentioned around some of these workflows and tools that need to evolve, one example, of course, being, well, how do you do content preview in a voice interface um, when you want to publish it, Um, which is a really important thing for a lot of content strategists and content designers. Um, In the context of usability testing, you really have to think about some other approaches that are not so concurrent, that are more retrospective, that allow you to do some of these things not at the same time as the conversation you're having with the voice interface because of that potential for interference from the interactions you're having. And so 
usability testing for voice becomes a really different consideration. Yeah, no, it sounds about like it. I hadn't thought about the, the think aloud uh, issue and that to get users' expectations, it's just going to confuse the the assistant. Um, yeah, that's really interesting and, and you know very pragmatic. But um, yeah, one example of that actually, just to just to kind yeah, of yeah. you know push that just a second further is that um, one of the examples of that is you know uh, we had a case during the usability testing we did for Astro to Gov where um, you know very briefly and we didn't do think aloud, but the user uh, you know the uh, subject said, oh, I selected. X option or Y option, and suddenly Alexa, per, you know, perked up, thinking that the person said Alexa instead of I selected, and uh, <laughs> yeah. suddenly said, "Oh my gosh, what do you need?" You know, so um, it's one of those things. It's really hard to get right. Absolutely, it is. It is. It just reminds me of my uh, my kids constantly here at home saying, "No, not you, Alexa," and um, uh, almost like uh, scolding a pet or something. It's really funny. <laughs> uh, this is great. I really, you know, I like how. It's interesting. You talk about the web with regards to voice the way maybe 20 years ago, I talked about print with regards to the web, right? It's very, there's this sort of generational shift of like, we did a bunch of stuff in the web. It has framed and colored our perceptions of, of digital systems. And how can we now step back from that and really see where the opportunities are that, that just haven't existed before with this new technology? Really interesting. Yeah, I think print design especially is a really interesting place. I, you know, I used to work in print design as well. Mm -hmm. I designed magazines and trifolds back in the day. And I think um, it's really interesting the way that we've moved from these broadsheet boundaries and these, you know, tabloid lines over into these arbitrary browser boundaries. And um, for, all, for all intents and purposes, the web is really quite similar to uh, print media. But voice and spoken content and the fact that we're now actually yielding this content and providing this content in a way that is completely oral and verbal raises a lot of interesting questions about the differences between um, how we speak and how we write, the fact that we don't say to whom it may concern during normal conversation, and we also say the word literally a lot more than we write it, um, or the fact that uh, you know written conversational interfaces are very different from voice interfaces because you have the luxury of having that back scroll, that you know, mm. microfilm viewer of, of archives right. from your conversation. Um, and, you know, you know, also to some of the other implications of voice interfaces, which really have to do with the fact that a lot of our communication is nonverbal. The mere fact that you and I, Jeff, are having this conversation with a visual component, a screen, so we can see each other, even though right. this is an audio-only podcast, is really revealing about the ways in which our paralinguistic or our other subtextual behaviors really influence the way that we communicate. What do we lose and what do we gain? when we move into voice interfaces without thinking about all of those things? Well, I think the book is probably a good place to start to answer those questions. Uh, I think it's fantastic. I've been uh, reading it this past couple of days. And so congratulations on that. That's very recent, isn't it? It is. Yep. It just came out June 22nd, and um, it's available right now on bookshelves. Um, Abookapart.com is where you can get a copy. And um, I'm really excited about this book because it's one of those books that it's the very first book, first of all on uh, voice content and, let's say, informational uh, voice interfaces. But it's also the first ever book on voice from A Book Apart, my publisher, uh, which normally does a lot of work with web and mobile and a lot of these other uh, kind of channels for, for uh, content. Well, we're good friends with the folks over there. They do amazing work. And uh, so the book is there. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, where else? You've got a website full of content. We should send people there. You know, Where else should we uh, learn more? 
Absolutely. I do a lot of writing in a lot of different places. I write on both content architectures and content strategy and content design. You can find a lot of my writing about voice content and content strategy at Preston.so, my website. But you can also find a lot of my writing in a lot of different places. I do writing for A List Apart on content strategy. I've written for Smashing Magazine about immersive realities. Um, I've also written for CMS Wire about some of the tooling that we mentioned earlier that's going to need to be created for these off-the-web experiences. Um, And of course, you can find out more uh, about um, uh, the book at abookapart.com. And uh, I've also got, by the way, a conference that I run coming up here in July, July 14th through 15th, is Decouple Days, which is a conference about headless CMS architectures um, and uh, content beyond the web. Uh, for developers and architects and business people. Uh, It's the first time in our history that we're actually making it free. So you can check out decoupledays.com for that. Finally, you can also find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter um, as Preston So, or email me at preston.so at oracle.com. Awesome. Awesome. Links to all of that will be in the show notes. Uh, Preston, this is a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks so much, Jeff. And I'm looking forward to more conversations uh, in person, not with a voice assistant, hopefully soon. Totally, totally. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable. Presentable.